It's time to travel with Anita. From across town to around the world, she covers it all. Spanning the globe for more than four decades, Anita has been to over 100 countries and territories and is the host of the Lowell Thomas Bronze Award-winning podcast, Quarter Miles Travel. From load transportation fares to travel insurance concerns, safety to savings, Anita gets you there and back with a smile along the way. Now, here's the host of Travel with Anita, Anita Thomas. Hello, 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 and welcome aboard Travel with Anita and Friends. Now, the show today is a very special one. It's a repeat of a previous show about Juneteenth. And what's extra special about today is I'm sharing the Lowell Thomas Award winning show. Now, the Lowell Thomas Award is given to recognize excellence in travel journalism. And this is the third year in a row for Travel with Anita. The award is named for Lowell Thomas, who was an acclaimed journalist, author, and modern-day world explorer who achieved numerous firsts during his travel journalism career. And this year, there were over 1,400 entries to be judged. So here is the Silver Award-winning entry in the audio radio category, all about Juneteenth. Now, June is the month for Juneteenth as an African-American celebration of the ending of slavery in the United States. June 19th is observed as the African-American Emancipation Day, which started in Galveston, Texas in 1865. But today, Juneteenth is celebrated all around the United States, as well as in other countries, too. It's a day and sometimes a week and even in some cases and in some areas, they celebrate for the whole month of June. (laughs) They're really celebrating. Now, there are so many cool places to check out African-American history and culture. It's really pretty easy to do. I mean, those things are out there. Between festivals, cultural events, museums, historic sites, there are so many places to learn more. Or as I like to say, learn more about those things that you thought you already knew. And what's a better way to celebrate all that makes America great than to travel with the theme, especially when it's something that we have a purpose in mind to learn more about our country's history. Now, President Biden has made Juneteenth, which is June 19th, a federal holiday. So, you know, there are going to be some celebrations around and some people may even have some time off uh, for the holiday. But how did this day become one to celebrate and what makes it or what made it so significant? Well, here's the story behind it. In 1863, during the American Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, we all know about that, which declared more than 3 million slaves living in the Confederate States to be free now. But more than two years would pass, however, before the news reached African-Americans living in Texas. So, I mean, how did that happen? So it was not until the Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas, on June 19, 1865, that the state's residents finally learned that slavery had been abolished. Now, those former slaves immediately began to celebrate with prayers, with feasting, with song, and with dance. And that celebration continues on until today. But here's a good thing. You can recognize Juneteenth any time of the year by visiting historic sites and destinations honoring African-American history and accomplishments. And one of those places to recognize that contribution of African-Americans, and in particular, African-American soldiers that fought during the Civil War, is in Franklin, Tennessee. 
There's a statue that was recently erected to honor the colored soldiers who fought for their freedom during the Civil War. It is called the Fuller Story, and it shares how African-American soldiers, Union soldiers, signed up in Franklin, Tennessee and went on to fight. And it's called the Fuller Story because it tells the full story. Now, I had a chance to be there for the unveiling of the statue that took place back in the the end part of last year for the, what is called the USCT or the United States Colored Troops statue. And the fuller story does tell that story. So I want to share with you some of the some of the things that I heard when I was there as told by Eric Jacobson, and he shares the fuller story. I think part of the problem with the USCT story is that it was so unknown to the vast majority of Americans because it had literally been just covered up. Um, Former USCTs were among the greatest resistors in the period after the American Civil War. Places like um, uh, the Colfax Massacre in Louisiana where hundreds of USCTs were killed. Um, led to eventually the resistance breaking down. A lot of these former black men just simply uh, burned their uniforms, threw them out, or stopped talking about being soldiers. And so the stories were, they just weren't well known. I mean, I consider myself a reasonably intelligent person, and I was not taught about USCTs when I went to school. And I think for the country as a whole, it wasn't really until the movie Glory came out in 1989 where people began to understand well, gosh, there were black troops, and the black troops all fought, of course, on one side, because the other side was seeking to perpetuate slavery, so of course these black men would serve for the United States Army and Navy. Slavery is the, is the issue that drives the country to war. It's what is at the heart of secession, but of course when the war begins, the President of the United States is focused on trying to preserve the Union, and that is President Lincoln stands. But by 1862, barely a year into the war, he realizes it is possible that the United States could win the war. And when I say United States, that's really what it was. We often call it the Union or whatever. It was the United States. Okay. And so the President of the United States decided that it was possible that the U.S. could win the war and there would still be slavery. And the cost had already been so great that Lincoln opted to move in a different course. Lincoln had always been opposed to slavery, but as a lawyer and as the president elected to uphold the Constitution, he knew that slavery was legal. And Lincoln decided to issue the most famous executive order of all time, the Emancipation Proclamation. And he declared that all people enslaved in areas of rebellion were free, but a great provision of the proclamation was that black men could join and enlist in the United States Army and Navy. And thus it began. Within six months, the 54th Massachusetts, who were forever remembered in the movie Glory, for which Denzel Washington won an Oscar, and these black men joined by the thousands. Now remember, these were men who were not citizens of the United States, and many of them were runaway slaves, probably 75 or 80 percent. They were not citizens, and they were still slaves, and yet they were fighting not only for their own freedom, but to defend the United States of America. What more noble cause is there? What more noble cause could there be than these nearly 180,000 men who gave of themselves and would suffer some of the most awful fates because many of these men knew almost immediately that they were not to be treated equal 
because the Confederate government made it very clear they would not exchange black troops. They would not treat them as prisoners of war. They would send them back to slavery. And in places like Fort Pillow on the Tennessee River north of Memphis, many were just murdered. It takes an immense amount of bravery to continue to enlist when you know that might be your fate, and yet they did. And these black men fought all over, from Virginia to the Carolinas, to Arkansas, to Mississippi, and into Tennessee. They fought at the Battle of Nashville, Bryce's Crossroads, Tupelo, the Crater, Jenkins Ferry. And I think that we all quickly coalesced around the idea that it was long overdue to recognize these men. You drive across this country, you can see statues to Confederate soldiers, and frankly, white US soldiers all over the place. How many USCT statues have you ever seen? We, we can't fill two hands. We think there are five or six. 160 years after the American Civil War, there are six statues at best. There's not a single one that's in a public square until today. For a trip to Franklin and to visit the USCT statue, visit the website, visitfranklin.com. Now, you know, Franklin has a lot of other things to see and do, especially around the Civil War. So when you're there, you can check out some of those things too. Coming up in the next segment, I will talk with an artist who actually carved and made the sculpture. I mean, it's a pretty fascinating story when you hear a story. There's a lot of connections. May give you a little bit of goosebumps, but stay where you are because when I come back, I will share his story and how he became the artist to make this iconic statue and have the lives of these soldiers come alive. Back in a few minutes, he'll travel with Anita and friends. Hold on. informs us and inspires us. It tells the story that many times words cannot. Art can tell our story. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. Now, have you ever traveled with art in mind, maybe to visit a museum or to see public art? It is one of the ways to not only explore a city, but also to learn more about it. And artists can capture the meanings, the feelings, and the message all in their work. I mean, that's, that's what makes them them special. I mean, that's what makes them unique is that they can do that. Artist and sculptor Joe Howard is the artist who created the image and sculpted the statue of the USCT soldier, which now stands in front of the courthouse in Franklin, Tennessee. It's kind of ironic that the sculpture would be there. It is the location where the black troops would come to enlist. And Joe Howard, as you'll hear soon, was really specially called to make this project a success. And although he did not have formal college art education, he has done many apprenticeships throughout the years. And he began exhibiting his sculptures when he was in his 20s. And throughout his childhood and all throughout his life, his hands have always, always been creating something. Now Joe shares how he feels that he was actually called to make this project come to life and what it means to him. It really touched me emotionally about this project because uh, before I really talk about me getting anything deep about it, said uh, I was asked one time, you know, uh, 
Well, I was asked by the, by the group here. We, we'd like you to give the, the uh, title of the piece. And uh, I thought about it and I said, March to Freedom. And I was said, uh, well, it doesn't look like the guy's marching. <laughs> I said, he's marching every now, now and then along the way you do the rest, but you still continue your march. And what was happening with, uh, with me with this piece is that I began to think about what these men were going through was, you know, I began to hear words about uh, slaves that escaped, actually escaped from the plant, various plantations to join uh, the military and fight in this war, meaning that they had to, you know, dodge the possibility of being hung, being beaten if they get caught, whipped, all that stuff, you know, started going through my head. And it, it took those kind of things for me to come up with the title, March to Freedom, because before they fought, they marched. They marched. Before there was ever a Selma or any other type of uh, march that had happened where black people had to stand up for their own freedoms, they marched long before we were blessed with the opportunity to continue a march for our own freedoms. But the way that I have the soldier, um, I have him with his foot upon a stone. That stump is the representative, as far as I'm concerned, the tree of sorrow. A tree in which men were tied to, children were tied to for sale. Not only were they there for sale, but they were there beaten. So all that there is about what that stump is, the tree has been removed, the tree is gone. And I have the tree as though the tree is deteriorated. You'll see the bark where it's separating from the stump. And that's all is to say with that foot on top of, this is not to be anymore. Not only that, you'll see a pair of shackles. The shackles are connected to the tree, but part of the shackles are buried within the dirt in which they work so hard for. When you look at the shackles, you'll see the shackles are broken. And that's to show that they are never to be chained again. You'll understand once you see the face and all of it comes together. So, it took all those things. Now, one thing about it, when it, when it came, I mean, all this was inside of me, and I said, man, what am I going to do? Where am I going to get these elements? You know, the, 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 you know, the bayonet, the, the rifle, all the gear, and I'm just, oh, what am I going to do? I looked online like everybody does today and looked at some <laughs> books. It just didn't do it for me. I said, I got to have real stuff so I can really work from this from my inner being. I met a fellow some, maybe now, 12, 14 years ago, that long ago. I met him at a uh, reenactment. And this guy, and he had the most beautiful beard. I mean, I, his look, I just fell in love with his beard. And I asked him, could I uh, take his photograph to, I wanted to do a drawing of him. And he gave me his card. He was a union, um, he, he, he played the role of a union. Uh, Phil Doctor, I think maybe that's the proper thing, I'm not sure. But he said, I'm not one to carry a gun. He said, I'm one to heal. I said, okay. I said, I appreciate that. So he, he actually had a business card. Kept it for years. And here comes his project. I said, oh, I remember that guy. I remember that guy. 
and I only had that card. I looked all over my house for that card because I knew I never threw it away. Oh, I know I got that card. I looked and looked and could not find it. Up to the bottom, could not find it. And I was just about to give up because I said, I don't know where I'm going to get all these goods. I'm going to have to go back on that and do that thing online. I went back in my bedroom with a little basket I keep, a little small braided basket. And I had already gone through it because some things that are very important to me, I put in it. I looked at it twice, could never find that card. But this last time, a voice came to me, go look in that basket. I went back in there again and just put my hand in it and put my card in I called the fella, didn't know if he was still living or whatever, but I called him. He said, and after all them years, he said, I remember you. I said, wow, okay. And I told him what I was trying to do. He told me to come on out to his house, and he lived roughly 50 miles away from me. And when I got there, he said, Joe, I, I got what you need, but I don't have it at home. He said, I'm a southern soldier. So I reenact the southern side. But I got a friend. I said, cool, man. I appreciate this. <laughs> so uh, I met the fella, had a short talk with him, told him what I was doing. And I said, I would love to photograph him, photograph his, his equipment. Could I borrow it just for a day? I'll bring all of it back. He said, Jerry, you can have it as long as you need it. And I was like, this is meant to be. So after about maybe two months into the project, I said, I gotta return this man's, you know, all of his equipment, because I mean, it's precious to him. He said, keep it as long as you need, Joe. He said, keep it till the end of your project. So I kept his, all of his gear for almost a year. I'm saying all that to say that I really believe that I was chosen to do this project. I really do believe it. I'm gonna say something now that I may say again Friday, but I'm gonna say it now anyway. I'm going to tell you just, I told you how Brother Chris here had uh, asked for seeing my, my, my uh, work and then eventually they said, we want you to do this. But then I began to think about it and I said, man, I said, your name is Joe Frank, remember Frank, Joe Frank Howard. I went to Frank. Franklin Elementary School. I was raised in Franklin County, Ohio. And I'm doing a sculpture piece for Franklin, Tennessee. To learn more about the Fuller Project and the USCT sculpture, visit the websites franklintn.gov and visit franklin.com to learn more about the Fuller Project and the sculpture, and how you can plan a visit to Franklin, Tennessee. Now we'll stop here, take a break, and when I come back, I'm going to talk with a living legend who's part of the Civil Rights Movement in Alabama. Her story will have you leaning in to hear every word of what she has to say. So stay put, we'll be back in a few minutes. You're on Travel with Anita and Friends. For more travel tips and information, visit my website, Travel with Anita and Friends, and follow me on social media. On Facebook, it's Travel with Anita. Instagram, it's Anita and Friends. There you'll find photos featuring some of the things I shared today. Because of greatness, the 
person make a difference? Can one step forward lead to many people following and making our world a better place? Well, the answer to that is yes. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. I recently traveled through Alabama, visiting many of the historic and iconic landmarks and spaces where the civil rights movement took place. And one of the most amazing parts of visiting this area is that you get to walk in the footsteps of many people who blazed the trail to equality to make our world a better place for everyone. Now, I want to quote one of the foot soldiers that I had a chance to meet during my visit. She says that movements for social change are like jigsaw puzzles. Everyone is a piece. If your piece is missing, then the picture is not complete. Why? Because you're the most important piece. Joanne Bland. Now, as she said, everyone does have a spot in making the world a better place. And when I talk about theme travel and visiting destinations to learn more about our history, the Alabama Civil Rights Trail is definitely one to put on your list of places to visit. And the exciting part is that there are still what I call living voices, people who were part of the movement, who are still alive and can share their story personally. And Joanne Bland was a young girl when she was first introduced to what would become her life's work as an activist. She was one of the many who crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge and walked to Montgomery for voting rights. On the morning when I met her, she began our tour starting at the Tabernacle Church in Selma. And this now is the site where the first mass meeting of the voting rights movement was held. The first meeting, there were 300 people in attendance on May 14th in 1963. And but a little known fact is that the Tabernacle members and their friends had used the Tabernacle basement for secret underground voter registration sessions since the 1930s. Now, Joanne took us also to the St. James Hotel to sit and hear her story. This hotel was constructed in 1836 when the city was the hub of Alabama's plantation region. And it is the only riverfront pre-Civil War era hotel still in existence and it sits adjacent to the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the Alabama River. Now, Joanne shares how the hotel is significant to her story because she once could not come into the hotel. But now, she brings her tours there and shares her story in the courtyard. But her story is best told by her. And I met her and had a chance to sit down and hear her story before I walked across the iconic bridge. um, You're gonna walk across the bridge eventually. But I didn't think it was fair that you walk across the bridge without hearing about the first time I walked across the bridge, okay? I showed you where I grew up at. My grandmother came to live with us when I was three years old. She came back from Detroit to bury her only daughter, my mom, who had died in the halls of the White Hospital here. According to my older sisters, they didn't have any black blood. I don't know what black blood is today, so don't ask me. The blood had to be ordered from Birmingham and sent to Selma on the bus. But by the time the blood got here, my mom was gone and my baby brother had been born, stillborn. My grandmother came back from Detroit to the funeral and she stayed to help rear us along with my dad. Grandmother had enjoyed some freedoms in 
Detroit that we didn't have in the segregated South. She couldn't understand how, after all these years, things had not changed here in Selma. She started talking to some of the women in the community about those freedoms, and they introduced her to a lady named Amelia Boynton. Sam and Amelia Boynton were our farm extension agents. They recognized early on that if we could vote, we could change some of those laws of segregation that was, were unfair to us. They formed an organization in the early 1930s called the Dallas County Voters, and they set about trying to register African Americans in this community. Grandmother started going to the meetings and she would take us. Boring. <laughs> We had to sit at the feet of those history makers while they strategized on how to go get this thing called freedom. Now, personally, I thought they were the dumbest old people in America because I already knew Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. It was obvious that they didn't know it. They kept talking about getting this freedom. Well, whenever I would ask, no one could explain it to me where I could understand it. But one day we were in front of that drugstore I told you to remember, Carter's Drugstore. At that time, Carter's had a lunch counter. And I wanted to sit at that lunch counter, but my grandmother said I couldn't. She said, colored children can't sit at the counter. It didn't stop me from wanting to sit at that counter. Every time I pass by, I see those white kids spinning around on those stools, licking those ice cream cones, and I'd wish it was me. This particular day, my grandmother was talking to one of her friends in front of the store, and I was doing what I always do, peeping that window, wishing it was me. But this day, my grandmother noticed, and she leaned over my shoulder, and she pointed toward the, through the window to the counter, and she said, when we get our freedom, you could do that too. I became a freedom fighter that day. I understood instantly that the freedom that grandma and her old friends were going for was the good freedom. You know, the one that would let me sit at that counter. I started going down to First Baptist Church to the meetings of SNCC with my older sisters where they tried to teach me the principles of nonviolence. I wasn't having any of that at all. I grew up in the hood. You hit me, I was gonna hit you back. Well, I'd act so ugly when the nonviolence train, training started. My sisters would put me out of the church. One would lean over and say, you could go outside now. And I'd go, because I didn't want any part of that. Now, I'm proud to say I've come a long, long way since then. Violence in any form is wrong. You know it as well as I know it. But I like the marching. When they come out that church and get in the line to go to you march, I'd be in that line like I've been training all day long. We march up to our courthouse. Sometimes they see us coming and lock the doors. Most of us were not old enough to register in the first place. So we would kneel on the steps of the courthouse and someone would say a prayer to the Creator asking him to lift the hearts of those evil men so our parents can vote for us until we can vote for ourselves. You know, that got old quickly. They started rolling yellow school buses up in front of the courthouse and loading us up on those buses and taking us to jail. They would put us in cells that were supposed to hold one to two people. I've never been in a cell that had less than 20. 
upwards to 40 people all jammed up in that little space. If you were lucky or unlucky enough to get to bed, you didn't sit there long, the mattress was gone. And it was just that metal frame. It had that lip in front to keep the mattress from sliding off. Didn't feel good on the back of your thighs at all. The toilet, right there, just right there. No privacy, just right there. That many people jammed up in a space that small, trust me, you don't want to be near the toilet. Our food, dry beans. For those of you who cook beans or have seen them being cooked, you know you can't just open that pack. You have to pick out the stuff you can't eat. The rocks, the dirt, the insects, the grass. No one did that for us. I think they took pride in bringing you a plate with a huge rock sitting right in the middle. Those things were done to break our spirits, but we were as low as we could go. They let us out, I'd go home, take a bath, eat a good meal, and I'd find out I still could not sit at that counter, and I'd be right back up in their faces, oftentimes going back to jail the same day. By the time I was 11 years old, I had been in jail 13 documented times. And no, no, I was not the youngest. If you were there, no matter how old you were, you went to jail. You got put in those cells. I'll stop here, but when we come back, Joanne continues to tell her story. To learn more about Joanne Bland and to take one of her tours, visit her website, IamJoannBland.com. And to plan a visit to tour the Alabama Civil Rights Trail, visit the website, tourismalabama.gov and click visitalabama.travel Back in a minute here on Travel with Anita and Friends. Inspiration comes from travel. I mean, it is one of the best ways to not only open the world to ourselves and have it in our hands, but it is the best way to open your mind. Welcome back to Travel with Anita and Friends. I want to continue sharing with you Joanne Bland and her story as a civil rights movement activist. In December of 1964, the Dallas County Voters League, under the leadership of Dr. Frederick Douglass Reese, wrote a letter of invitation to a man named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., inviting him to Selma to speak at a program on January the 1st, Emancipation Proclamation Day. Dr. King already knew of the work that the Dallas County Voters League had been doing toward voter registration for over 30-some-odd years. He already knew of the work SNCC had been doing here since 63. As you study Dr. King's campaigns, you will find out that Dr. King never went anywhere where he was not invited. He also never went anywhere that didn't, that was not already organized, that a ground crew was already here and doing that work. Dr. King chose Selma to be the headquarters for the battle for voting rights for all citizens in these United States. Things really heated up then. Dr. King brought in his lieutenants and he stationed them in counties all around us. So voter registration drives were going on throughout the Black Belt. He sent Reverend James Orange to Perry County. Perry County is a small rural county, approximately 30 miles west of us, 
Marion is the county seat. In Marion, Reverend Orange found it easier to organize students. After all, their parents worked for the people who were trying to keep us from getting the right to vote. They marched on their courthouse and were arrested, all of them, including Reverend Orange. Reverend Orange himself told me that about 3 o'clock that day, a state trooper came into the area where he was housed with a rope. On the end of that rope was tied a noose. Reverend Orange said he threw it over the top of his cell so that noose hung in his face all day long. He said he had to sit there knowing it may be his last day on earth. That evening, they let the children out. They kept Reverend Orange. A mass meeting was being held at a church approximately two blocks from the jail. The children ran into the church and disrupted this meeting. They said, you have to do something. You have to do something now. They're going to kill him. The people in the church decided to walk down to that jail and walk around it all night long in hopes that their mere presence would save this man's life. When they left the church, they were attacked and brutally beaten by law enforcement officers. A young man named Jimmy Lee Jackson emerged from the church just in time to see a state trooper beating his grandfather, his 82-year-old grandfather. Jimmy's mom saw him beating her dad, too, and she ran over. As she approached that trooper, drew back his billy club to hit her, and Jimmy put up his arm and blocked it, and that trooper shot him. Upon Jimmy's death on February 26th, the leaders decided that we were going to walk from Selma to Montgomery to protest this young man's senseless death and demand the right to vote from our then Governor George Wallace. On March 7th, we gathered on that playground where you picked up that rock and led by John Lewis and Hosea Williams came down Broad Street and over the Edmund Pettus Bridge and met a wall of policemen. When that line stopped, John Lewis asked permission to pass. The policeman said, there will be no march between Selma and Montgomery. You have two minutes to disperse and go back to your church. In less than 30 seconds, they attacked. Now, I had never experienced violence. Marching was fun to me. I liked the spirit of the movement, the songs, the chants, being with my friends, not going to school. I liked all of that. When I crested that bridge and I could see across, I saw policemen lined all the way across all four lanes of Highway 80, right up under those traffic lights. I knew we were not going to Montgomery then. As we came down further, I saw that the service roads on both sides were filled with policemen, some sitting on cars, some sitting in cars, some standing, some sitting on horses. Which further affirmed we were not going to Montgomery that day. Now, normal procedure would have been John or Hosea, when they got to that line, or whoever was leading a march, got to that line of resistance. One of them would ask to pass, it would be denied. They would go down on their knees and we would follow suit. And one of them would say a prayer. And after prayer, we'd get up and go back to where we started from, either plan a new strategy or just regroup and come right back. I was too far back in the line to hear, see what was happening. So I just waited so I too could kneel. 
Suddenly I heard gunshots and screams. I thought they were killing the people down front. Before we could turn around, it was too late. They came in from both sides, the back and the front. And they were just beating people. It was just nowhere to go. Oh, young, black, white, male, female. It didn't matter, they were just beating people. People lay everywhere, not moving, bleeding, and you couldn't stop to help them. The gunshots I heard, no one was shooting bullets, to my knowledge, on that day. It was the tear gas canisters being shot into the crowd. Tear gas burns your eyes, gets in your lungs. You can't breathe, you can't see, you panic. Oftentimes, you run right back to the same people you're running from. It seemed like it lasted an eternity. The next thing I remember seeing is this horse and this lady. And I don't know what happened. Did the man on the horse hit her and she fell? Or did he, the horse just run over her? I do know that as I sit here 57 years later, I can still hear the sound her head made when it hit that pavement. The next thing I remember, I was on the city side of the bridge, right over there where the Selma Interpretive Center is now. I was in the back of a car. My head was in my sister Linda's lap and Linda was crying. When I became fully awake, I realized what was falling on my face were not my sister's tears. It was her blood. My 14-year-old sister had been beaten on that bridge and had wounds in her head that required 35 stitches. Yet, on that following Tuesday, I held that same sister's hand as we followed Dr. King and Dr. Abernathy across that bridge on March 9th. I'm not ashamed to tell you when I crested that bridge and could see across and saw the same scene I had seen that Sunday, I didn't want any more freedom. Whatever the cost of this freedom was was just too much for this 11-year-old. I tried to go back, but my sisters wouldn't let me. They kept talking, trying to coax me across. Finally, I remember one of them saying, come on, they're not gonna beat Dr. King. I went, but I was scared. This time, Dr. King asked permission to pass. The policeman told him the same thing. But this time, the front went down. Dr. Abernathy said a prayer. And after prayer, he and Dr. King stood up and led us back to Brown Chapel AME Church where he held a mass meeting. At that mass meeting, he told us that he had applied for a court order that would give us the legal right to walk from Selma to Montgomery if we so wanted to, but more importantly, be protected. That order was signed by a judge in Montgomery named Frank Johnson on March 17th. And on March 21st, we left Brown Chapel one more time, came down Broad Street and over that same bridge, and those same policemen who beat us up on the Selma and had to protect the marchers all the way from Selma to Montgomery. 54 miles, five days it took to get to that capital. I walked the first leg and I walked from St. Jude to the capital, the last leg. My sister Linda walked every step of the way. And August 6th of that very same year, the Voting Rights Act was signed and it removed those obstacles that prevented us from voting. Here in Dallas County, we went from 250 African-Americans on the road to 9,600 immediately. 
To learn more about Joanne Bland and to take one of her tours, visit her website, IamJoanneBland.com. For more tips and travel information, visit my website, TravelWithAnita.com. And also, go over to social media and follow me there. On Facebook, you'll find me at Travel with Anita. And on Instagram, it's Anita and Friends. You'll also find some of the photos from my trip when I visited the Alabama Civil Rights Trail. Thanks for joining me. Go out and make travel your key to learning more about the things that you thought you already knew. Bye-bye.